Dr. Mike Caparelli, how are you? Thanks for joining us. Good, glad to be here. Um, I know that we've been trying to get you for probably a little while. We had a little scheduling conflict, so I'm very excited. I'm a big fan of you. Thank you. you do. Um, so if those who don't know, who's listening, uh, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. Um, so I am a professor of psychology classes at North Point College in Haverhill, Massachusetts. Uh, my PhD is in uh, behavioral science, which is a mix of psychology, sociology, criminology. Um, I also was a pastor for 16 years of a church called Sacred Exchange in East Greenwich. Um, it was a church where we uh, reached out to people in addictive backgrounds. Uh, we grew the church mainly through a 12-step group that met every Tuesday night. Um, that was a doorway for people to come into the church. And uh, I'm also a father of four kids um, and uh, madly in love with Jesus and with a woman named Alicia. And uh, yeah, I teach part-time. I travel on weekends. I'm usually somewhere in the country on a Sunday sharing uh, either in a church. I speak in colleges, speak in prisons um, on subjects usually related to mental health. You're busy. I thought I was a busy guy. Yeah, pretty busy. Where find the time? <laughs> I get up early. I wake up super early. I probably sleep about five hours, yeah. yeah. I'm in bed by 10, and I'm up usually by 4. So, yeah. That's early. So, you mentioned that you are a doctor in behavioral... Behavioral science, yes. And you're also a pastor. Now... The combination, the first person I've ever uh, noticed do this was uh, Dr. Carolyn Leaf. Yeah, Carolyn Leaf, yeah. She's like a neuroscientist. That yeah, I don't know if she was a pastor. Was she a pastor was, at one no, point? No, I know she's a Christian. But she's a Christian neuroscientist, right. yes. To me, that was the first I've heard of it because, you know, I think there are every, a lot of people under the misconception, as I was, that it's either God or science. True. Right? Or it's either, you know, either or. It's and, true. And they're both exclusive. Mm -hmm. But as we know, you know, and I've learned from you and her and others, uh, that they're not exclusive, they're harmonious. Absolutely. So Absolutely. In what ways, like I, I've heard you say things before, but what ways um, would the science come together with God? Well, I mean, God is the creator. Uh, so science is simply a learning or discovering his creation how it works. I mean, if you're a scientist in the area of uh, anatomy, you know, you're studying obviously the body and God created the body. And if you're studying animals, uh, for me, I study obviously human behavior. Um, when I read my Bible, I see through the lens of behavioral science, I can pick up on a lot of theories I've learned within the study of behavioral science in the reading of the scripture. Um, we can see at play uh, human nature within the Bible, and it's very much, uh, you know, it's very much complementing with what we know from behavioral science. People are, are predictable species. There's certain instincts, basic instincts, that we all have and that govern our behavior. And uh, studies have done through the years to show how we respond, what we would do if placed under these conditions. And we all, we all like to think we're the unique, you know, specimen, the one, uh, the one person that wouldn't do this particular thing. 
but the reality is studies often show us that the overwhelming majority of participants respond this way under these conditions. And we see that in the Bible. We see that in the narrative of Scripture, that men and women um, behave in a certain way. It's a certain modus operandi to how people tick. Uh, and that's why the Bible is as relevant as it is even in 21st century context, because even though we're reading about people that are in Israel or Egypt uh, thousands of years ago, human nature really hasn't changed. And we know that God's nature also hasn't changed. So the Bible and science go very well together. One thing that I usually uh, think about when you talk about the behavior of science or whatnot is a scripture that tells you to renew your mind. Hmm. And I yeah. think if it was, it was thought for a while that the mind was not malleable, is that True, that's right, yeah, that's right. That the mind can change. Hmm. And then you go back to scriptures thousands of years ago that relate to science. Absolutely, yes, incredible. definitely. Yeah, for, for, for centuries we believed that um, how a person thinks and how they process information, that their brain was in stone. And then just the last 50 to 75 years, uh, guys like Dr. Norman Deutsch, who wrote a book called The Brain That Changes Itself, he's a neuroplasticity uh, doctor, uh, he, he helped us see that the brain is not in stone, but it's in flux. It's continually changing based on choices. And that your, your, your whole neurological structure is, as you said, it's ma malleable, it's moldable, it's like clay in the hands of a potter. So um, the Bible would never say to renew your mind if it wasn't renewable. But it's amazing that Bible writers knew that long before the discovery of neuroplasticity. Yeah, big time. I, I, I read your book. It was very good. Thank you. Yeah. I, uh, I like to learn about myself, and you know, mm -hmm. I thought one of the most interesting things was you, you you show physically, as far as when you talk about toxic relationships, like getting used to being into in a toxic relationship, you really pointed out the, the physical aspects of the brain which I've never heard before mm -hmm. said like that, where like you get used to a situation because your neurons are you know you, your brain learns That's right. to get used to. Um, uh, a toxic situation, and you get it becomes your norm. Mm. Right. That's right. It was. Uh, it was I've never started putting that way. I'm not a religious person, like it's Alice. Sure. <laughs> I kind of cover it, but I just thought, as far as it was, pretty incredible physical nature of the brain and how it just. I, I, I was. It was pretty amazing to me that that that, that you know because it does happen. You know, like, the more I read of your book, the more I could see that I could see, understand what you were saying. You know, mm. Bad situations. I was a, uh, I'm a recovering, I've been clean for 16 years, but I was a... Congratulations. And I, I you know, I, it, it makes sense, you know. My norm 17 years ago certainly isn't my norm today. Mm. Not even close, it was a different life completely. So I really took your book to heart as far as that goes, that it is a physical, you know, you can get, your brain can be sort of not fooled, but, but like you said, it's... it's conditioned. Conditioned, which mm. is amazing. Yeah, I've, I've authored two books, uh, Pena, Pain, and the Parables, which came out in 2019, a book that was um, also purchased for uh, the ACI, 1,500 inmates, minimum, medium, and maximum, uh, are using the book, and then uh, Teen Challenge, which is an adult uh, substance abuse treatment program, about 15 or 16 of their centers picked up the book, and they use it with the NIC curriculum. And then the second book, The Ox and the Ass, came out a year later, last year, and that's about toxic relationships. And this fall, uh, I've got another book being released. My goal is one book per year. Um, I write for those that have been 
oppressed in some way, shape, or form. It's 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 releasing those that are held captive by broken minds. Yeah, so just so. like Al, both of these books have helped me out quite a bit. Um, let's talk about the ox and the ass. Yeah. Cox's relationship. First of all, it's an interesting title with an interesting cover. Mm. Um, it's going to be on our website. Yeah. To see, but it's a picture of an ox in a wedding dress and an ass in a tuxedo or suit. Seems like he's acting like an ass. <laughs> and um, how did you come up with the name Ox and the Ax? And what is the significance of that name? Uh, the name comes from Deuteronomy chapter 22, where Moses forbids farmers uh, from, uh, from yoking uh, the neck of an ox with the neck of an ass. And uh, he's speaking literally that farmers wouldn't make this mistake on the farm. But then the Apostle Paul in the New Testament uh, takes that scripture in Deuteronomy 22, and he uses it metaphorically to describe relationships with people. Um, he calls it an unequal yoke. That's the very phrase that farmers would use when they would yoke an ox with an ass. And it was unequal because an ox is a hardworking industrial animal. And an ass is a stubborn, unchanging, uh, lazy animal. And if you yoke the two together, um, you've got this ox with all this energy. He's moving forward, but he's really not moving forward. He's really going in circles because he's carrying dead weight. So the ox and the ass becomes a, a picture, a symbol, uh, a metaphor for uh, toxic relationships, incompatible unions. Um, uh, to use modern terminology, people that are empaths uh, yoking with narcissists, which is a very common trap um, f for many reasons. Uh, those that have empathetic natures are drawn uh, to those with n narcissistic personalities um, so it's a mistake that we're still making. Farmers made it on the farm um, with yoking oxes with ass for their own reasons. And now that mistake is still being made today. And, and when people do find themselves as an ox yoked with an ass, they find themselves going in circles. In circles. Yeah. So, um, you know, you, you are from New York. Mm -mm. Are you from Providence. No, no. I thought you were from New York. No, I'm from Providence. My stepfather's from the Bronx. Okay. And he raised me. Um, so when I was a kid, uh, he took me back and forth to New York City all the time. And uh, I just took a love into the city at a young age because it became kind of a part of my um, childhood. Providence is my, is my childhood, yeah. For some reason, I thought you were actually filming. No, nope, I went back and forth between Providence and New York for, for years, just tra traveling, ne never living there. So I like, uh, what I like about you as well, I, I mean, you're one of the smartest guys I know. Um, and... Um, but you're you're real, um, like you you yourself. Mm -hmm. you know, I think I don't know if it's a trap when you, you know, you have that the PhD title, whether you're writing a book or doing an interview, and you in the kind of be maybe a little robotic because you're trying to show people what you know. But you sure. you keep it real, and I, I want to uh, make a quote from this book. Where yeah, yeah. It's just um, it's about many factors to happiness, and, and you say that uh, happiness. Uh, it's usually considered an inside job. Mm. But uh, with your, within your mind, but it says success not only who you are, but who you are. So before you diagnose yourself mentally ill, make sure you aren't just surrounded by whack jobs. <laughs> yeah. I like that. <laughs> yeah. I like that. See, that's, yeah. that's keeping it real to me. But it's true, right? Because we can say, what's wrong with me? What's mm. going on with me? I need help, but a mm. lot of times we don't see what surrounds us, who we surround Absolutely. ourselves with. 
right? And you make a, a point of uh, external and internal laws of control. Could you mm. explain that? Oh, locus of control. Yeah, a locus of control simply means in psychology, um, what is your sphere of influence? What, what do you have jurisdiction over in your life? Those that have um, an internal locus of control uh, believe that they have power over their life. Um, an external locus of control is when I, I give power to something outside of me. And I say, well, I'm not happy because... Of this person or this situation, and uh, it's kind of a uh, you know a helpless mentality because if I've given power over to someone else over my happiness, if I don't own my happiness, um, then you know I, I live as a victim. I live I live helplessly and at the mercy of something or someone else. An internal locus of control is a healthy mentality. It's saying I'm responsible for me. I have to make choices. Sometimes I've got to make choices about the people that I'm I'm with because they can't affect me. Um, relationships play a big role in in how we feel, and uh, sometimes we got to step back and say, "Am I really an unhappy person, or am I in an unhappy situation that needs some changing?" And uh, that takes you know, it takes some assessment. It takes courage eventually to do it, uh, because those kinds of bonds we develop with people, places, and things are very intense, and attachments are hard to break. Now, you say that the ox is usually an empath. And the ass is usually a narcissist. Mm -hmm. Why in God's name would those two come together? Well, it's easy to understand how a narcissist is going to be drawn to an empath because a narcissist is on the take. Um, they're the kind of person, they're not looking to give. Um, they're looking for givers. They're looking for people to take care of them. It's all about their needs, their interests. So very easy to understand how they're going to be drawn to someone who's empathetic. Um, empathetic people, because oftentimes uh, they're led by their compassion, their heart, um, can be, if they're not careful, uh, easily manipulated. And narcissists can be very manipulative uh, type of, types of people. So it's, it's an easy trap to fall into. Uh, plus, empaths like to be needed. Uh, they like to, to feel like they can uh, fix someone that's defaulted or broken in some way. Which is also another reason why it becomes an easy trap to, to be connected to someone of a narcissistic personality, because it's perceived by the empath as a challenge, someone that I can I can fix. You know, this is especially true with women towards men. Um, when God created Eve, uh, He created Eve to be a helper. Um, Adam was showing himself to be unfit alone, whatever that looked like. Uh, so God creates Eve to be her His helper. So the woman's nature is to be a helper. So when she's asking questions like, why am I drawn to men that need help? Well, you're a helper. Helpers are drawn to people that need help. Problem is, some people don't want help. So the problem is, sometimes you're drawn to somebody that does need it, but they don't want it. And now they here begins the ox-ass dynamics. So Going in circles. Going in circles. Now, I, um, it says you, there's these ace circles. Uh, what type of circles would they possibly go? It could be going in the circle of addiction. You know, you're with someone and they're an addict and they keep saying they're going to get clean. And you could be going at this for decades. I mean, as a pastor, I pastored many women that were, even men, that were in relationships with an addict that it was the same circles. I keep taking them to the same rehabs. 
keeps draining the bank account. Same mistakes, same patterns, over and over. Um, that's a circle. The other circle, A, could be adultery. Uh, those that cheat on their partners are 3.5 times more likely to cheat on them again than someone that's never cheated. So if someone's cheated once before, uh, there's, a, there's a better likelihood they're going to cheat again. Um, and that, that becomes a circle, the circle of adultery. For other people, the A is abandonment. It's a relationship where, um, you know, maybe there's not any cheating or addiction, but there's just emotional, uh, a person's emotionally unavailable. And there's this continual threat of, of abandonment. And uh, the emotional unavailability itself becomes a bankruptcy in the relationship. And it keeps people just going in a, a circle. And then lastly, there's abuse. And that's those that are just in physically, sexually, uh, verbally abusive situations. And there's a whole, you know, there's a whole cycle that, uh, that those that are in those abusive relationships go through where it's a storm and then there's, you know, then there's a reconciliation and then there's a period of calm and then we're back in the storm and it just, it's like a, it's a continual pattern. Yeah. Wow. Now, I, you know, I looked at that and then there's a part in the book where it says that even the ox um, in a relationship, as much as they want to help and mm -hmm. try to help or fix the person, think they're going to fix the person, there's usually something in that relationship that attracts them. Absolutely. You made the, uh, say, to say, let's not think we're uh, uh, Mother Teresa mm. and mixed with Gandhi and we're sure. here to help because there could be something that attracts us. Or it could be compelling, like... Uh, excitement or whatever it is in the relationship absolutely right? yeah i mean we're self-serving creatures um none of us are purely altruistic meaning we do things out of complete selfless motive that just doesn't exist right. so you got to step back and ask yourself the question if you're in one of these relationships what am i getting from this yeah. something yeah there's something in this for me whether it's i need to have companionship i can't be alone and even if it means being with an ass, it's better than being with no one. Uh, or if it's financial, some people are, are stuck because of finances. And quite honestly, if they had an option and there was uh, another more uh, financially convenient situation, they'd take it. Other people, it's the need to be They just like to be needed. They like to be uh, the fixer. So there's something you're getting out of this and identifying whatever it is that you're getting out of it. Um, is is an honest step that needs to take place because that's the very thing you need to wean from to be able to to uh, make an exodus from a bad relationship. And I, I think this, this book really opened my eyes. Um, I, I'll, I spoke on it as well as where I think we just go through emotions. It's true. We just we're in the relationship. We're doing things. Our partner is doing other things, and we don't know what's going on. We're just in it. Mm -hmm. You know, and this kind of shed light on. Mm. The knowledge is and it puts a magnifying glass on different things. Why am I doing this? It's true. You know, so that's it was very good for me. And I also noticed um, the part of love addiction. Mm. I didn't even know there was such a thing. You know, mm. you think of alcohol, drugs, gambling. Mm. You think of that as addiction, but when you think about love addiction, I don't even know what this is. But when I look at myself, I'm like, ooh, maybe I'm addicted to love. It's one of the most powerful ones, I would imagine. Absolutely. Chemicals going on, right? Definitely. Yeah, and the, the, the term used in behavioral science is limerence, L-I-M-E-R-E-N-C-E, -E, and it, it literally means uh, a love spell. 
that we come under a love spell, we can actually think we're in love. And we are in the loose sense of the word love, not in the divine, uh, wholesome definition of the word love, but there is a, f a semblance of love. It, it triggers all the same chemicals within our brain, whether it be oxytocin or dopamine, um, or you know, cortisol sometimes, adrenaline, you know, if we're in involved in that exciting kind of love. And uh, those chemicals do become uh, addictive, and, and we need we need that feeling. And and Whitney, I mean not Whitney Houston, Tina Turner nailed it in her song. What's love got to do with it? Uh, she keeps asking the question, but through the song, she's describing this chemical process. I touch you, you touch me. Boy meets girl. There's attraction, um, and then she says, "What does love got to do with this? Is this this is not real real love? This is just chemicals. We're addicted to chemicals." And she was describing her relationship with Ike Turner, which she had made an exodus out of that. Um, and for years, she was trapped in that because of all the, the circles that you get stuck in with people. Big time. Big time. Wow. That's crazy. So if someone's, let's talk about if someone's in a relationship, um, I guess, would they need intervention? And someone who is not currently in a relationship, and how would they avoid that, which is prevention? Hmm. Sure. Yeah, well, uh, speaking first of, of um, prevention, it really takes time to get to know someone. I think what you're at war against in our culture is a fast culture, a culture that you put something in the microwave, in two minutes it's ready. Uh, you meet someone, a month later they're moving in. Um, we're, we're so far removed from the days of courting you know, 2,000 years ago, where two people met, they courted for a year. Um, but really, there's no substitute for time, because time is a revealer. Um, time, you get to see someone. You get to see them under pressure. Um, if you're moving too quickly, you're going to end up in a situation, oftentimes, that uh, you're stuck, and you say, I wish I knew these things. Well, you didn't take the time to see the red flags. So the book will lay out what those specific red flags look like, um, but if there's one rule of thumb, it's take your time. So you've read Dr. White, people slow down. Yes, absolutely. The instant gratification, sort of. Definitely. People are looking for, right? Definitely. And in many cases, they're coming from a very desperate place. You know, I can't be single any longer. I hate coming home to a house that's empty. Um, and now out of that desperation, uh, by the way, the desperation itself is an immediate sense for people that are predatory. Um, sharks, you know, find their prey by the scent of blood. Um, and in the same sense, when a woman or a man is desperate, it's like a scent of blood. That if they're in the environment with anyone who's abusive or narcissistic, they pick up on that scent. And it becomes a magnet uh, to the wrong kinds of people. So you're starting off wrong if you're, you're looking for someone and you're doing it out of a desperation. Um, so that's prevention. As far as intervention, you're stuck in the relationship. You're probably not going to get out of it alone. You need a herd. Um, you need other oxen. You need to plug into a church community. Um, being in a relationship that's abusive is like being in a room with all the blinds down and there's no light coming in and you can't see it's dark. You've got to open up the blinds. Opening up the blinds means letting, letting light in from the outside. Uh, counsel, advice, perspectives, accountability. You need relationships, a herd, uh, to help you uh, come out of that. Chances are you're not going to get out of it alone. And then most importantly, you have to know your worth. Uh, you, you won't fight for something that's not valuable. 
Um, so the, your chances of fighting for yourself when you don't see yourself as worth anything is not very great. But the higher your worth becomes, your awareness of your worth, um, instinctively your fight mechanisms are going to kick in because we fight for what's, what's valuable. The other way I word it is um, boundaries are always enforced wherever value lies. In a bank, we see security systems because there's, there's value in that bank. We don't find the same boundaries and security systems in junkyards because there's junk. So if you see yourself as a junkyard, your ability to enforce boundaries are probably not going to be that good. But if you see yourself as a bank, prime real estate, now um, enforcing boundaries is going to be almost instinctual because boundaries always enforce where valuables are realized. Right. So I, I would think um, for people who do have a low self-worth, um, it's not like flicking a switch. What, what could they do? Because I mean, the re there's a reason why they're in this place in the first place. Right? Sure, yeah. So for them to say, well, I am worth it. I am, you know, above this or better than this. And I, I deserve more. Sure. What are some things that people Well, I mean, self-talk is, is wonderful, but the reality is we need the voice of someone else. That's why I begin with saying you need a herd. Uh, you need someone else in your life that cares about you, that can point out what's good about you. Uh, most importantly, you need a savior um, who died for you on a cross. That cross itself puts value on your life, that he would pay this price. If, if you pay a high price for something, it's because it's worth that much more. So he paid a high price, and going to the cross and realizing whose you are, not just who you are, but that you belong to him, now now your worth is going to start to get built up. You're not going to be able to, to, to talk yourself up into believing you're worthy. Um, it's going to have to come from the outside. It's going to have to come from the, the people in your herd, as well as your God, as well as yourself. You're going to need all those things. You're a social being. Um, relationships is pivotal to your your growth. So it's going to be a multifaceted Absolutely. All different areas. Absolutely. One area you need. Exactly. Around you. I, I, I think like if you're, I've heard it said, like if you're in a forest and you try to paint the forest, it's impossible. Exactly. You step outside the forest. There's That's right. With other people come involved. Right? Exactly. You see things from the outside. Counter perspective. Yes, counter perspective. It's, it's very powerful. Exactly. Nice. So, um, so we have the prevention, we have the intervention. I know it's, got to be difficult to get this kind of toxic, unhealthy relationship to get out of it. Mm. So how do you, how should you know if you should stay or if you should go? Yeah, that's a big question to ask because I don't believe that every uh, relationship that has some toxic dynamics is insalvageable, that you have to go, um, that it has to end and be no more. Um, I've seen many relationships through the years many, especially marriages, when there's a commitment, there's covenant, that were salvageable and that were redeemed and restored. Um, if the very evidence of a toxic dynamic was a reason to leave, then the divorce rate would skyrocket to 100%. It's already at 50-something percent. Um, we're broken people. There's no way. You, you're not going to find a relationship that doesn't have any toxicity. It's just not going to happen. So that's the other thing to be careful for. If you're looking for this ideal relationship without any toxicity, you're going to be bouncing around from one covenant to the next for the rest of your life. And it's probably a big misconception with a lot of people. Yes. You know, that they, what, they, they dream of this, especially, I don't know, with women more, where they, they have this 
picture perfect wedding and exactly the, wife, the two kids, the dog, the pick white picket fence and then Exactly. They, Reality they, bites slaps them in the face and then exactly. they just turn it on or That's just, right. That's why I put the caption on the book, not ending toxic relationships, but toxic relationship dynamics, because uh, the dynamics have to stop. And in some cases, that means the relationship is going to end. It really depends upon how the other person's responding to your boundaries. Are they responding to you wanting change? If they're a true ass and they don't want to get off their ass, you're probably not going to go very far. But if, if they are equally inspired as you're moving forward, um, then in many cases with the right help and with God at the center, the worst relationships can turn around. I mean, I'm all for marriages staying together. I'm all for it. But I am also a realist in understanding that in some cases, there's nothing that can be done. You have to leave, especially so, when your safety is involved. So if, if both are obviously this is obvious, but if both are into the change, it obviously works out. It can, yeah. Just one person, it's probably difficult to change yes. a relationship. We need both. It's somewhat both into the absolutely into the changing of it. Yeah, and it, that doesn't mean that the, the two people, your pace isn't going to be different. I mean, people's growth pace is different. But the the question is, are you wanting it? Are you really showing signs of progress? It may be slower than my progress, but are you are you wanting to get counseling? Are you wanting to be involved in? Uh, whatever type of intervention or help we need, so. I like the, uh, and I don't know if this is comparable, but mm. um, I like the, uh, you said the both people might have to want it. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the analogy of some, one person standing on top of the table, one person sitting down. You, yes. You want to explain that? Right? Yeah, oftentimes we think that we can go into a relationship and we can pull someone up out of whatever bad situation they're in. But, uh, you know, Sir Isaac Newton's Law of Gravity teaches us that um, we're going to get pulled down a lot easier and quicker than you're going to pull up. Um, we see people jumping off buildings. Weight pulls them down. We don't see people jumping on, to, on top of buildings. Yeah. Gravity works downward. So in a relationship, uh, for instance, if somebody's sitting in a chair and you're on top of the table, you're going to be pulled down by them quicker than you're going to pull them up. And it's the same thing in the, so, in the social context. You're trying to pull someone up. And guess what? At the same time, they're trying to pull you down. And chances are, after a few years, you're going to be lesser, a lot easier than they're going to be better. That's what's going to happen over the course of time. So, Going back to your book, you, you, it, was, uh, it was released in the ACI, 1,500 copies. Yeah, yeah, there's 1,500 inmates, minimum, medium, and maximum. Pain to pain. Yep, that was last year. Yes. Okay. Yeah. How is it received by? Because they're in the probably the worst place you can be as far as you know to change yourself. They're in a, a tough environment for that. Well, we dropped the books off Christmas time, mm -hmm. and they're in COVID quarantine lockdown, all that. They're just coming out of that, oh. so I haven't had a chance to get the feedback yet. I just know that Ken Finley, who's the head of rehab, um, we made the drop off. To him with all the books he was putting the books in the hands of the prisoners and i'll be going in there sometime this year once the covid bans start to lift and then i'll get a first-hand glance a uh, chance to see up close and personal you know what the book's been doing cool. so um another thing that surprised me reading uh the ass is uh ptsd mm. um is 
speak on that because that was like really surprising about you uh, compared to someone maybe going to war. Our first understanding of PTSD began in the 1950s when soldiers were coming home from uh, World War II and we realized that they weren't the same. You know, Dad, Dad was uh, uh, discharged, he's at war in Germany, and he's, before he left, he's a nice guy, and then he's coming back and he's, he's on edge, he's angry, he's stressed, he's easily provoked. So behavioral scientists started to kind of hone in on just those that went to war and realize that there have been changes in their brain. And then we developed brain mappings, which is a sophisticated brain scan. We started to see that there were neurological changes to their brain because of the stress of war. Well, then fast forward into 1970s, 1980s, and uh, certain researchers, I can't give you names, but certain researchers um, whose names I don't recall, they started to realize that the same types of behaviors those that went to war and changes in their brains, those same kinds of behaviors and changes in the brain were happening to those that were in long-term relationships that were very much like living on a battlefield. And uh, the stress, uh, having your cortisol levels up all the time because of being in a relationship where you're walking on eggshells. You're afraid of what to say, what not to say, what to do, what not to do. Um, living that way with those cortisol levels up for so long, eventually your amygdala, which is the part of your brain that houses your survival instincts, um, your amygdala hijacks the rest of your brain. And now you're living continually with the amygdala active. The amygdala is only supposed to turn on, at least the survival instincts, which is considered the reptilian region of the amygdala, coming from the word reptile, the animal part of you, is only supposed to be turned on when a car's coming at 70 miles per hour. You're standing in the middle of a street. The house is on fire. But when you live er every day and every moment like it's a crisis, um, it changes your brain. Um, in, rather than living out of your prefrontal cortex, which is the part of your brain responsible for analysis, slow, careful decisions, um, that part of your brain that you're supposed to live in on a regular basis shuts down, the amygdala takes over, and every circumstance feels like a crisis. Every, every circumstance has to feel like a crisis. And I think, you know, I'm sure there's people in the, these kind of relationships that that's the norm. Mm. Like this is, like to, people look on the outside going, what's going on over there? But when you're in that, you're probably like, it's, it's normal. It's it becomes normal to fight, it becomes normal to flight, it becomes normal to freeze, and it becomes normal to fawn. Those are the four survival instincts. You're in one of those four modes on a continual basis. And all four of those modes are really animals in the animal kingdom. You know, if you look at animals under stress, some will fight like a bear, some will uh, flight like a rodent, you scare a rodent, he's gonna run. Some will freeze like a deer in headlights. And others will fawn, fawn means to uh, pacify the, the one threatening you, to do whatever you can to cooperate. So though, th many people live with those instincts constantly active, and that's, that's stressful. Yeah. It's not good. Now, we haven't even talked about how it affects the immune system, the organs, uh, the aging process. There's all sorts of physiological consequences, never mind just the psyche stuff. Constant state of stress. Constant state of stress. That's pretty, mm -hmm. that's pretty amazing. I, I, I mean, I, it's amazing. I'm sure you've seen it as amazing how what, what people become normal with 
mm. as far as relationships. You know, you see people that scream at each other constantly, and that mm. becomes their. You know, still tell people they're in love and a happy marriage or um, relationship, and they're screaming at each other all the time, and it's just amazing. And it's that just goes back to what Dr. Mike was talking about: is the misconception, misconception of love. Right, mm. right, right. Because love Absolutely. is chemical, but then you know, I'm sure after a while, they go all levels out, right? So this 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 surge and rush of all these chemicals, I'm in love, and then after a while, those chemicals. Absolutely, sure. Which can be a, you know, if you're breaking free from a relationship like that, and yeah, it's 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 a um, a part of the process of healing and recovery that your cortisol levels are going to go down, but it's also depressing because those chemicals, adrenaline, um, endorphins, they're almost like uh, opioids. The endorphins are called the natural opioids of the body. Because and, and, and adrenaline, because when it's pumping through you, you don't feel pain. Soldiers in war, uh, while adrenaline is pumping through them, can get shot 20, 30 times, and they'll keep running because those chemicals, endorphins and, and adrenaline, they're opioids. They numb you from feeling anything. So now you leave a crazy relationship, your adrenaline level starts to go down, your cortisol level starts to go down, your opioid level starts to go down. What happens? Just like detoxing. From heroin or booze or whatever your your numbing medicine is gone the novocaine is wearing off and you start to feel emotionally a lot of pain which can be a real journey for people in in coming out of a difficult relationship in many cases the reason why they never leave a difficult relationship because intuitively they know it's coming they don't want to go through that right, so or they find another one right. well, that, that was the point i was going to make next is that they must the empath they, um, the empath in a relationship, if they get out of that relationship, will they search for another relationship? Chances are, in many cases, they do. That's why I think if you have a herd of people around you, you're connected to a good church, part of a good 12-step group, uh, you go to Al-Anon. Al-Anon meetings are wonderful. They saved my life. Um, you can be sustained by the relationships in those groups. Granted, there's not a romantic element to it. It's not the same but it still can help scratch that itch that you need for relationships and for people, the connectivity, that craving to belong, to be a part of something. And I'm sure it's accountability. And it's accountability, and big time. It's pretty big because it's huge. You know that holds you accountable for not going back. So exactly. You start moving back that way. You have somebody say, "Hey, wait a second. That's right. What are we doing? We just spoke out this. That's bad right. For you. Bible says, in the counsel of many, there is safety. We find safety in counsel." you know, in the multitude of advisors, so. So uh, speaking of the PTSD. Yeah. And uh, the healing and whatnot, I guess this is a pretty good segue into pen, your pain, and the parables. Yeah. It's the tool for recovery. Can you uh, explain this book a little bit? Yeah. Um, well, when you go through something traumatic, uh, the trauma is not stored in your brain like an ordinary memory, okay? Uh, like, I'll leave here today by the end of the day, I can look back on this day and tell you what happened hour by hour in its context, in proper sequence. Trauma is not remembered that way. Trauma being traumatic, being traumatizing, is stored in the subcortex of our brain where we only remember things in snippets. We remember impressions. 
If a woman is sexually assaulted, she might remember the smell of nicotine on her attacker. She might remember the feel of the blade against her neck. Now, those memories, because they're, they're stored in snippets, because they're, they're like sound bites almost, and because they're out of context, they're not remembered in its actual context, they can become larger than life. They turn into what we call triggers. So every time I smell nicotine, I feel panic. Every time I see someone pull out a knife. Every time a man talks to me with the same tone of voice my father talked to me with when I was a kid and he beat me. These things become triggers. And we now are triggered by recollections, really the ghosts of the past, stuff that happens in the immediate situation, the immediate context, that brings back something from the past, triggers us, we relive the stress. The idea of Pena Pain in the Parables is to go back to those places with the help of God and to tell the story and to put things in their right context and to see it from a distance, to see it from uh, another point of view, to see what you learned and how God used that to develop you over the years. So now a moment that was once a tragedy becomes a testimony. Uh, a badge of shame, something you never wanted to talk about can become a badge of honor. Your story, the very thing that, um, you know, uh, could have crippled you can become your asset. It can become the very thing that uh, brings you dignity and brings you wisdom and, and, and gives you uh, a sense of purpose that I, I came out of this. Um, it, it turns you from a victim into an overcomer. Um, and the Pena Pain in the Parables process, uh, the book, it assists you in doing that. And going back to some of those moments, seeing it from a redemptive perspective and realizing that God's been with you your whole life and you're not a victim, but you're an overcomer. So those who are maybe not are aware of Jesus spoken parables, short stories. That's right. And that's what we're basically doing here, right? Those short stories about different incidents in your life. Too. Is there something about putting the pens to paper that? Absolutely. Well, just that itself. I mean, that's one piece of it. There's a lot of pieces of it. But just the idea of writing, um, there have been many studies done on the cathartic effects, the catharsis, the detox effects of people that write about stressful events. And after six months of writing about it, a year, you know, they measure their, their moods, they measure their depression, anxiety levels. Those that write about these incidences uh, show better improvements in depression levels anxiety levels than those that don't write about it. So just the act of writing itself is a catharsis. So, so these books definitely go hand-in-hand. They can, yeah. Well, I mean, one is more social. Sure, one's more social, the other one's more personal. Well, so um, you did mention you are writing another book. Yeah, I got two actually coming out this oh, wow. year. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Or are you keeping yeah, no, that's okay. One of them is called Dr. Jesus, and it's a... Um, a daily devotions, but the way it's organized is that every devotional teaching it will speak to some area of mental health. So you'll be able to go into the uh, the table of contents, and if you want to find uh, teachings pertaining to anxiety, or stress, or attention deficit, or paranoia, you can you can go to that particular uh, mental health symptom and find a teaching from the Bible complemented with uh, neuroscience and complemented with behavioral science um, on that particular area 
And it's all under the umbrella of the teachings of Christ because he was, uh, in my opinion, in my experience, you know, the master therapist, the real, the real doctor. Um, that's the first book. The second book is a children's book. It's called um, When Iguanas Feel Unsafe. And it's written for a, a child that may be being molested right now. And uh, whoever's reading that book to them, whether it's a librarian or a parent that doesn't know what's happening, the book is, is educating that child on what they should do. Um, I wrote the book because, I'm, or I'm in the process of writing it, um, probably halfway through right now working with an illustrator, because I, I came to realize that it's more likely that your child will be sexually abused by someone one in three girls by the age of 18, one in five boys by the age of 18, more likely they'll be molested than hit by a car. Wow. And you've had, you've had the conversation with them about looking both ways when they cross the street. But then that lends to the question, have you had the conversation with them about molestation, about good touch, bad touch? So we wrote it with that intention to be a book of intervention for kids that are hearing the story and knowing what to do about it. And there's a certain artfulness and tactfulness in how to write this. It's taken some time because you don't want to plant seeds that are unnecessary. You don't want to put fear in a kid. Um, somehow you got to, uh, we're, we're, we're wrestling with writing it in a way that's careful but not fearful. Making them careful but not fearful. Wow. So Those numbers are staggering. Mm -hmm. One in three young ladies by the age of 18, one in five boys. That's awful. And then that's something that would lead into toxic relations. Oh, big time. You know? Big so, time. Big time. Uh, and then I think that's what maybe parents may have trouble because you have to say you have to do it in a certain manner. Well, the, the, the story itself has to be written in a way yeah, yeah. that it's not going to frighten, but it's going to equip. Because every parent wants to protect their kids, but the best way of protecting your kid is equipping. Equipment is the ideal protection. Because I'm not, omnis I'm not om omnipresent. I'm not omnipowerful. I can't be with you all the time. Um, so I have to hopefully put the right tools in your hands um, that you know how to cross the street when you're crossing the street. You know, so. Uh, so um, let's talk about your, uh, you have a nonprofit. Called yeah, it's called Unmuted. Um, what, what, you can explain about that and what, and also what made you, um, coming to something like this, what um, led you? Thank you, Val. <laughs> what led you to do this? To do? Well, the reasons for Unmuted are very, very personal that involve uh, people that are close to me that I really can't speak of right now and, w and where that came from personally in me, but I can say that there's much personal experience behind it. Um, from a more professional perspective is pastoring for 16 years, uh, met so many people, worked with so many people that had lost their voice, lost their expression of who they are in God because of traumatic situations. So there's a story in the Bible about Jesus healing a mute man and the Bible says his tongue was loosened. And unmuted means to give victims their voices back. Those that have lost their voices through trauma, oppression, domestic violence, childhood abuse, um, lost their voices, given them their voices back. Because uh, if, if the enemy of our soul can take our voice away, um, if you could put a muzzle over our mouth, a, a gag order, um, when we lose our expression, our ability to express ourselves and be who God created us to be, um, we're better off dead. 
um, impression to have impressions inside of you without expression equals depression or aggression. Um, people are, are sad and mad because they're, they're, there's so much pent-up pain and suffering inside of them, and they have no outlet. So Unmuted, through its books, uh, through seminars and workshops that I do from church to church, teen challenge centers in the prisons, um, is to help people loosen their tongues. So I am rocking your Unmuted uh, <laughs> t-shirt. Thank you. So I got my voice back, and it has a scripture that you talked about. Yes, loosen tongue. 730. And it says unmuted.app. Is that really how That's right. You got it. You got it. So you can't see me wearing the shirt, but um, you will see it on the website as well. And um, I think you're doing a wonderful job for people. Thank you, man. Thanks for having me. I mean, there's so many people out there that don't have a voice. So many people who are suffering. Hmm. You know, and they, they believe they're alone. Hmm. And I think a person like you who's doing what you're doing, um, Gives them hope. Amen. You know, so I think that's wonderful. And um, if you want to find out more about uh, Mike Caparelli and his books, uh, you can visit us at www.bluecollar.live. His two books are Pen Your Pain into Parables, The Ox and the Ass, and you can learn more about his unmuted nonprofit that is helping uh, victims get their voice back and we're looking forward to your next two books Mr. Caparelli and we thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Very you. Much. All right, thank you.